Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. I think at the core, it's that what needs to happen is people need to understand that when someone else has a different lived experience, a different cultural, ethnic, socioeconomic ability, gender, a different background, and they have experiences related to that that you can't relate to, people need to understand that you're never going to understand someone else's lived experience. And there needs to be an openness to being accepting of that. This week's episode, I got to catch up with a phenomenal human being who, as a life coach, is helping people forge a purpose-driven life according to their values and not society's expectations. She values inclusivity and is a proud queer polyamorous woman who is an ally for marginalized groups and an outspoken advocate for racial and social equity. She's well known for her powerful speech that she delivered to a crowd of over 35,000 people at a Black Lives Matter rally in Brisbane back in June 2020. As a triple citizen of the US, Peru and Australia, she's also travelled extensively which has broadened her knowledge and experience, as well as affording her a unique perspective of different cultures and environments which she passionately shares and talks about. With a master's degree in applied linguistics, she also has a beautiful way of explaining and looking at a range of topics that many shy away from. Within this discussion, I got to ask her about her life, her passion, reflections and thoughts on a range of different topics all of which gave me plenty to think about and reflect upon within myself. There's an infectious energy and passion for people and life that shines brightly, which you'll experience as you listen to this episode with Leslie Cruda Villa Garcia. Leslie, welcome to Share. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. I met you late last year at ICF Christmas event. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I loved your energy. I knew I had to have you on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I was feeling quite energetic that day. Energetic, passionate, but I thought you had a very good way of putting a lot of topics that some people probably shy away from, which I thought was really good. And for me, I think in this episode, it's about not just educating others, but also educating me on on some of your past and, and some of your thoughts and and kind of inspiring us into how you think and, and what you are passionate about in life. Yeah, I, I think it was interesting. Like when I knew that I was going to be speaking at the event on the topic of the future of coaching, I mean, as soon as I saw the topic right away, I knew like, okay, here's some stuff we need to talk about. <laughs> because my professional background is in academia, really, before I became a coach. And even in in that context, a lot of what I was seeing around marginalized communities, and I knew that I'd be bringing a lot of that that background knowledge into my view of what needed to be done differently in the coaching industry in terms of the experiences of marginalized communities. One thing that often happens when I'm put on a panel and I'm talking to a group of people especially here in a place like Brisbane, is I become like the token diversity speaker. 
you know? <laughs> like I walk through and it's like, ah, okay, we've got someone who can talk about diversity. And it's like, yeah, I do talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I also have a background in technology and teaching and learning and things like that. When I think about my, my life story, like there's so much there that goes beyond my experience as a person from connected to various marginalized identities. So tell me, Leslie, your background. Tell me where you grew up and yeah, a little bit of your history. <sighs> this is always, a, it's always funny to figure out where to start because even starting with where I grew up is a little complicated. I mainly grew up in suburban Pennsylvania, but before we settled there, I, my family and I, we moved all around the US because my dad, his background is in engineering. And at the time he was overseeing a lot of construction sites. So sometimes we'd live in one town for four days before we'd move on to the next place. But my mom is Peruvian. So we were back and forth between the US and Peru a lot. And when I was going to school in Pennsylvania, all of our summers were spent in Peru. Because, you know, in the US, we have those three juicy months of summer vacation. We would finish the school year, maybe have a day or two, or maybe a week of just hanging out, and then we'd fly to Peru. Then we'd fly back probably about four days before the next school year began. So I was really growing up living between two very different worlds, which made it very interesting being a black Hispanic student in a very, very white school district who already didn't fit in for that reason. I also had the, uh, that barrier of being in a completely different country during those formative times when the kids were developing their own personalities and creating their own stories and memories. And then I'd start the next school year. I'm like, what is everyone talking about? I have no idea what is going on. So I was very much an outsider looking in. And at the time, I didn't realize how much of a gift that was because it was really challenging to live that way as I was growing up. But then I left the US for, I mean, I traveled a lot as I got older, did some work in the UK and Poland, and I left the US for good in 2007. And I had already done some study abroad and all that sort of thing. But when I left in 2007, I moved to Vietnam. I was teaching English at the time and met some Aussie guys when I was traveling, kind of ended up in a relationship with one of them. Moved to Melbourne, lived there for four and a half years. That relationship was just terrible. <laughs> but then I met my partner um, on a parkour trip, actually, up in Townsville, and they were based in Brisbane. So I went back to Melbourne. We did the long distance thing for a year after I broke up with the ex and I moved to Brisbane at the end of 2013. And here is where I've been ever since. Yeah. Excellent. And parkour. Yeah. Yeah. I was a parkour instructor when I was living in Melbourne, which was, which was a lot of fun. It was, yeah, wow. it was really challenging. I originally got involved with it because I needed something to do in Melbourne. I was really bored when I first arrived because I didn't really have my own social circle. It was really just my boyfriend's friends that I would spend time with. Stumbled upon this parkour thing and it just became 
a wonderful way to interact with people, but also a wonderful way to interact with the city, with my surroundings, and learning how to overcome physical obstacles in a way that drew heavily on my own developing mental toughness. And that's something that I still carry with me, even though I don't practice so much anymore. I'm still part of the community. It's still something that's a part of me. It's so cool that you did parkour and you trained it because I always look at people that do parkour and I go, how do you start in that? Like, how do you just, what's your first jump look like? You start very low to the ground. <laughs> and in my case, I was, I was like a boneless chicken when I first waddled onto the, onto the training ground, so to speak. Yeah, I was very uncoordinated. I, I, just, I just wanted to challenge myself. And it was very much a challenge, let me tell you. But I have a philosophy in life that anything worth doing once is worth doing twice. So so I made myself try a second time and then it just kind of snowballed from there. So even just through that, you would have learned so much about yourself. Yeah. The instructors would issue some sort of a challenge and I'm like, yeah, okay, right. Like that's not going to happen. And then I would do a thing that I didn't think I was physically capable of doing. And that helped me increase my confidence and just made me hungry to keep trying more things physically. And it was so good for my physical well-being also because my, my social circle, my identity at the time became being a member of the parkour community. Yeah. Awesome. Talk to me about your professional career. Where did it start? I went to university in New York City. So I was studying creative writing, but the main program of study that I was involved in was teaching English as a second language. And so that initial training took me all over the world, really. So I've taught in universities in Europe, in Asia, Australia, doing things like curriculum development as well e-learning developments, a lot of workshop facilitation, a lot of training. And that really helped me build that mechanism for interacting with groups of people and scaffolding information in a way that would help people achieve goals, whether that be academically, professionally, based on whatever, whatever their job roles were or whatever their life goals were. Because, you know, with teaching, that's, that's 80% coaching, right? And my most recent job was at one of our local universities here in Brisbane, where I taught for a few years. And I found that I just, I had to get out. <laughs> I had to get out mainly because I had reached a level within my career where, you know, I was speaking at conferences, you know, spoke internationally and all that. I had a master's degree in applied linguistics. I was on the academic board representing all of the educators in my department, but I still felt like there was nowhere else I could go just because of the the structure of the university and the new management that had taken over. I felt like even sitting there in the boardroom during these meetings, even though I was in a leadership position, it felt tokenistic. Like they just wanted a a representative from the faculty just to say that there was one there. I was able to offer input and offer insights, but in the end it was like, okay, well now what? 
the the working environment and you know academia can get really <laughs> the working environment made me less interested in the academic side of what I was teaching my students and I became so much more interested in that personal support side working with my students on their time management skills on their cross cultural concerns on their basic on their on their confidence on the just on their general life skills at the time and i really would have loved to have been able to work with them more one on one and that's when i realized that my heart just wasn't in the academic side of it anymore and i started considering a career change i thought i was going to go into counseling at first because it's something i was always interested in my mom was a counselor for 30 years before she retired but then i realized that if i had committed to a career in counseling that would have involved sitting in very very dark places with people in a way that i felt wasn't it's not that i couldn't do that but it wasn't my nature to exist in those spaces day in and day out and that's when i realized that coaching was a much better fit because i found a training organization it was actually a counseling school that also had a parallel program specifically in coaching and because i trusted this training organization enough i was like i'm going to give their coaching program a try because i've looked at so many programs and i'm sure you've seen this as well steve so many coach training programs are these fly by night operations <laughs> you know they really capitalize on that people's desire to just you know live a laptop lifestyle and all this other stuff and it's like well that's not what i'm about <laughs> like i want i actually want to help people and so i started training with this place and it just it awakened something in me that i was like oh my gosh this is what everything has been leading to drawing upon all of my strengths drawing upon my international experience my cross cultural experience and then the thought of starting a business which i had never done before that was exciting i had no idea how challenging it was going to be before i said you know what i'm done at the university i'm going to finish off this semester and i'm just not coming back i just jumped in both feet first <laughs> cuz it's like you know how challenging could it be really and then i found out quite quickly but i was up for it it wasn't something that i was going to try for a little while and then see if i could make money and then if i couldn't i would just leave i was like nope this is this is going to be me for the next you know 40 50 60 years or however long i'm going to live i knew that i had to pace myself manage my expectations persevere take all that energy that i was pouring into my previous career into something that meant something for me that was going to create more meaning and fulfillment in my life and yeah i committed that was initially what got me into coaching but then when i started seeing what some areas of the coaching industry were about it became much clearer why i needed to stay in the industry and that's really where the stories and things and the knowledge base and the learning that led to that panel discussion for the ICF event and came about because i was like wow there's a lot of people saying a lot of the same things but kind of ignoring the real lived experiences of people who don't have the same level of privilege as people who generally get 
can't access coaching. And it was always nice to find other coaches who did understand that, but I felt that the the most prominent voices were people who wanted to tell people like, no, no, you can mindset your way around everything. You can, you know, we all have the same 24 hours in the day. All, all the heroes in the industry just didn't. <laughs> what kind of cultural lens are you looking at life through? What kind of generational lens? And what kind of ethnic lens are you looking at life through? Because now you can't just bypass the actual systemic issues that exist for people and then act like everyone is on a level playing field. It's like, that's just, it's not realistic. And beyond that, it's really harmful to perpetuate those beliefs within society because it makes it really hard to empathize with people who don't have the same level of privilege in various contexts. It influences the way we educate children. It influences the way policing happens. It influences politics because it influences how we vote. If someone in a particular socioeconomic situation, been very fortunate in a socioeconomic sense, might not understand the struggles of people who, even now we can see it, people living in their cars, people living in tents in the parks and stuff. And they might think like, oh, well, there's the solution to that is just personal responsibility. They just need to make better choices. And then they'll leave a point to a lot of the personal development gurus, you know, spitting out the same cliches as evidence to support that. It's like that. No, no. It's like we can't do that. If what we really want to do is help people and make the world a better place and not just stick our fingers in our ears, then we have to face the realities of what's actually impacting people. Mental health struggles, sometimes domestic violence concerns can cause, can really derail people's life trajectories. Acts of violence that have been committed in other ways can completely change the course of someone's life in ways that you can't just manifest your way out of and just stick some crystals in your ears and pretend that all the bad people will go away if you just don't acknowledge them. That's something that I have really been working against in the work that I do with people. It's like, no, 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 I'm not going to tell you to just sit back and ask the universe for things and then just wait for it to to descend upon you. We're going to have to face your actual reality if we're going to create sustainable changes. Because I think if we focus too much on the individual, and it is important to focus on the individual when we're doing one-on-one work. But if we treat them like they are an island unto themselves and no one around them is going to be impacted by their decisions or they're not going to be impacted by the people around them, that's A, it's not realistic. B, it's a recipe for for isolation. It's just not sustainable. I love traveling, love traveling with my family, traveling with our kids and showing them different cultures and I think travel is probably one of the best educational things you can do. Yeah. You're learning different geography, different cultures, different languages, different currencies. We took our boys for a couple of months back in 2016 over to Europe. And I said to one of the boys' teachers at the time, I said, I actually think they will learn more than they will probably learn in 12 years of schooling. Mm, Yeah. Because it's phenomenal what they can learn. Yeah. And I feel that I was fortunate enough, and this is, one of the ways in which privilege has 
worked for me with my growing up. I was able to travel in my youth, going back and forth between the U.S. and Peru, and then traveling solo through various parts of the world. I knew I had a stable place to come back to. And my existence didn't depend on the job that I was working in at the time. Because, I mean, U.S. healthcare system, that's a whole other conversation, right? I had a home base to return to, to then calculate my next moves. So I've always had that global perspective that not everyone has access to. Mm -hmm. That's one reason I think it's important, even if you can't get on a plane and go to a different country, is to really like keep one's eyes open to what's happening in your local area in terms of the different cultures, the different ways of living, different, different challenges and struggles that the people around us have. You know, it's one thing to fly to somewhere like India and see a mansion next to a slum, see someone begging for change, and then seeing someone driving a, a Mercedes like right next to them and see these clashes and go, oh my gosh, this is so, the contrast is so shocking and this and that and, and witness those things and learn from those experiences. But then if you come home and don't see that in your own communities, it's a missed opportunity. Having that global perspective is something that I have drawn very heavily on in as I've settled down here in Australia. Mm. What do you think a large amount of people miss when it comes to understanding and having awareness of our multicultural society? I think at the core, it's that what needs to happen is people need to understand that when someone else has a different lived experience, a different cultural, ethnic, socioeconomic ability, gender, you know, a different background, and they have experiences related to that that you can't relate to, people need to understand that you're never going to understand someone else's lived experience. And there needs to be an openness to being accepting of that. Rather than trying to reframe someone else's lived experience back to them as a way of explaining why they should be doing better in life or in business, in school, or whatever, they need to just sit and listen. There needs to be more listening. But aside from that, and this is also very important, because we don't want to overburden people with educating everyone about their lived experiences. We need to do our own self-study about people who see the world through different cultural lenses. So if we're listening to a bunch of podcasts, it's like looking at the background of each of these hosts. Are we listening to people from the same background? The books we read, are they by people from the same background? If so, we need to have another look at how to diversify our knowledge base. We really have to look at the people within our social circles, our inner circles, our outer circles, our professional circles as well, and say, Okay, you know, do they all kind of look, sound alike, work alike, play alike? Where are the gaps? Whose lived experience am I not understanding here? And then go and seek out information related to that. You know, I mean, there's so many great books and podcasts and things that have been created by people from the marginalized backgrounds, 
that often don't get the same kind of cut through as more mainstream voices because there's still that suspicion around things. There's still that extra burden of proof that people need to provide to show that they are credible in terms of the subject matter they're discussing, in terms of their professional capabilities. We need to look within ourselves and scrape some of that off so we can actually see what people bring to the table in terms of their various life experiences. And this is important, again, in our personal professional lives, in our educational lives as well. This is something we need to think about when we are hiring people. It's something we need to think about when we are admitting students into various faculty programs. The goal shouldn't be to populate these spaces with people who all have lived the same kind of life. <laughs> because there's such a huge benefit in understanding a range of experiences. We need to seek out difference. And I say we because I include myself in this. This is something I've been very committed to. And don't make it harder <laughs> for people who have already been struggling to have their voice heard. Don't invalidate those experiences. Don't try to logic our way in the conversations around their experience. Don't gaslight people. <laughs> and that's something that happens so much in personal development. There's so much gaslighting that it's like, oh, okay. So what I'm experiencing isn't my truth. It's just a limiting belief. It's like, no, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the kind of pressure that you're under can't just be written off as a limiting belief. Sometimes you are being discriminated against, or sometimes you are facing much different obstacles than your colleague or whoever, and that's why you're not getting promoted. And so now how can we navigate around what you are facing and who do we need to build our communication skills to interact with? And yeah, we have to be realistic and we have to accept that our struggles are different and we're never going to understand exactly someone else's struggles. Yeah, I agree. I actually think there's power in all our differences, all our unique journeys, all our unique stories, our mm. cultures. There's power in that. And I think sometimes it's hard, and I find it very hard, is that sometimes different cultures and different backgrounds, to accept them, mm. another culture has to give something up. Obviously, the media has, plays a lot of this, but obviously, it's a very big thing. And I'd love your view on. Australia Day. Well, see, this is the thing. There, there, there can be an idea of like, in order to let some people in, we have to give something up for ourselves. And it's, you kind of have to look at the big picture. So when you think of things like Australia Day, for example, and the various campaigns to, to change the dates, to abolish the date altogether, or to keep everything the same, Whichever camp we fall into, we have to understand that there are a lot of historical tragedies connected to the day on which Australia Day, as we know it, is celebrated. For the indigenous people of this land, that is a day that marks genocide. And it can be really challenging seeing all the people around you going, yay! And it's like, okay, so we're celebrating genocide. And I say this also from an American perspective on days like Thanksgiving, for example. That's something that's very fraught because it's like, well, 
these days do kind of mark the beginning of a long history of subjugation, of genocide, but a very, very bloody and horrific sort of history that we're not taught in schools. For Australia Day, a lot of people look at it as like, oh, but if we don't celebrate Australia Day, then we're not given an opportunity to show our pride in being Australian. To which I ask, okay, have you really defined what being an Australian means for you? How you authentically want to express that pride? Because on one hand, it can feel like something being taken away from Australians, but it's also like, okay, but what was taken away that actually created the country that we know as Australia today? And it's that side of the conversation that a lot of people are not up for having, because that's when it's like, that's where a lot of the really sticky debates come from. Well, why can't we have this and this? Why can't we reconcile? It's, that's, that's a big conversation. We're just talking about Australia Day. I don't know, and, and events like that, like I love in our community, whether it's Diwali, Chinese New Year, whatever it is, uh, the community and the different cultures love bringing everyone together. All these nationalities and the cultures that have grown up, even immigrated into Australia, and I love the joy and the happiness and the celebration that a lot of those cultures like to bring to their communities. And it's sad that in Australia, we can't celebrate us all being Australian. And that's one of the things regarding a lot of the campaigns to change the date or to abolish the date or to just not celebrate it at all is that in, in the current form, for a lot of Australians, Australia Day feels like it's about celebrating the oneness of Australia. For a lot of the indigenous people of this land, it's about genocide. And that's something that a lot of people don't like to recognize. Yeah. Because when we look at other cultural celebrations, there are various meanings behind it that don't mark the beginning of a century of like a long campaign of genocide for First Nations people. And of course, I can't speak for the First Nations communities. They've been subject to a culture of invasion and erasure. It makes sense that people are like, uh, hang on a minute. No, no, no. What exactly are we celebrating? Because on one hand, people feel like they should be able to celebrate the oneness of things. But the tricky thing about oneness as a concept is there can be a lot of white supremacy built into the concept of oneness because, and this is something that freaks people out sometimes when I talk about this, in the history of the subjugation of various civilizations around the world, one tactic for conquering those people was to wash away their cultural markers was to impose this sense of like, no, 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 we need to assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. And that's where the, the oneness piece kind of comes in. It's like, no, 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 we're all one race, the human race. It's like, okay, so basically you're <laughs> erasing the differences that we have. And if you can't see those differences, you can't appreciate how differently we've struggled. So that's a very oversimplified take on the whole Australia Day issue. You know, there's a reason that some people call it Invasion Day instead. I think what you're saying there, though, and this is my view, is that it doesn't matter if you change the name, change the date, there's always going to be that resentment against the history of what's happened. And even if we had a day that was just 
I don't know what it was called or what date it was, there would still be opposition to it. Yep. And the thing to look at to really understand that is the work of the Indigenous academics who have been studying and speaking and writing on these things for a long time. Because if we're looking at sources in the media, if we're looking at sources within politics, if we're looking at those mainstream sources of information for this, Mm. the conversation is going to get, the important parts of the conversation are going to get lost. So reading the work of people like Chelsea Watago, for example, who is a local Indigenous academic, there have been people who have been saying and reporting on these things for a very long time from a very well-researched place. And these are the people who should be platformed in these conversations. Hmm. Yeah, because if you leave it up to the media, it's, it's, it's different agendas. I think in some regards, everyone's very nervous around even saying they're Australian. And for me, as a born and bred Australian, having respect for the First Nations people and all cultures that are within our lands. I feel it quite sad to almost feel like I can't say I'm a proud Australian. And that that saddens me because I am proud of this country. I'm not proud of its history. Mm. And I don't think the majority of people are proud of its history. You know, there are things in our history, but we're being tainted by the same brush. And I think we've moved forward in many ways. We probably Mm. haven't moved forward as much as we need to. The big question within that is like how we respect First Nations people. Like, what does that respect look like? And that's something that I think a lot of white Australians, it's a question that a lot haven't answered for themselves. And also as a settler of color, which is what I identify as, that's also an ongoing thing. People who have settled on this land, people who have descended from settlers to this land, we can say that we respect First Nations culture. And again, I'm including myself in this, but we need to clearly define what that means. For me, it means marching side by side and like photographing the rallies and things like that. Mm. For someone else, it might be something like, oh, you know, when I see an Aboriginal person walking down the street, I don't shout a racial slur at them. Yay! (laughs) There's like this big spectrum. So I think we all need to be really honest with ourselves about what our respect for First Nations people looks like and then own our decisions around how we express that. Mm. Again, like I, I wish we had an Indigenous academic in the room <laughs> to really dissect this issue. Yep. But those are the people that we need to be having these conversations with because there are a lot out there. You mentioned that name, which is great, and I'm going to look more into it because I want to learn more. I've been to the middle of Australia and I've done cultural workshops and spoke to the elders and everything like that. And I think what's really hard is that when it comes to First Nations people, they can't even a lot of the time agree. It's because they're not a monolith. (laughs) Just like all different cultures can't agree on certain things. (laughs) This is the thing. It's like, why do we have different political parties? Because we don't agree on everything. Looking outside of First Nations culture, looking at the various countries in the world. Mm. You know, you could be a liberal, you could be a Greens, you could be part of the Labour Party because we don't all agree on everything. That's exactly right. And one thing when we're looking at different marginalized communities is that we need to be extra aware of that. Like every person from a particular group who isn't part of a more privileged class within whichever country we exist, there's this sense of forced ambassadorship that happens. It's like, no, 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 your behaviors are now representing your entire community. Yep. And it might be hard to imagine living that way every single day, Mm. but it is a huge burden. 
getting people within one household to agree on recycling. <laughs> even that's a challenge. So to look at any group of people and say, oh, well, they, they can't even agree. It's like, well, that's because we're all humans and we're different. Yeah. And we need to catch ourselves when we're having those moments. That's right. You're never going to please everyone as we are in any, you're not going to in anything, but how do we, how do we reach that harmony or how do we reach that middle ground? We need to define what middle ground means for us. And I think a lot of these decisions people are trying to make in isolation and that's part of the challenge. But if you look at the work being done by places like the Institute for Critical Race Research, which is a local organization here. These are the people who have been working on these issues. These are the people who have really have been at the center of a lot of the activism around these things for a long time. Because a lot of times when people say when there is this idea of things being a lost cause or being hopeless, a lot of times they're not looking at the existing activism around some of these issues. And that can include things like when we're looking at the homelessness issue or when we're looking at LGBTQIA plus issues and stuff. People are like, oh, you know, we're never going to agree. Why bother? So many of these people have never even been to a protest ever. And it's like, OK, well, of course you're going to say that because you don't understand the work that's actually happening out there. Mm. A lot of times when we say things like this, it's really the coded message is like, I'm not interested in doing the work. They should be doing more work or I have other things that I'm focusing on. And it's like, fair enough. Life is complicated. We all have a lot of things that we need to do, but we need to be really honest with ourselves about our level of care and our level of interest in these various struggles. Mm. And it's okay to not be interested and in putting all your energy into everything. But it's also, I think it makes it that much more important that we really consider where the sources or where our ideas about some of these things come from. And I don't think it's a destination. And, and when I say I don't think, you know, is there a point we're going to get to? Yeah. It's not a destination. It's going to be an ongoing journey, which means we all take steps individually to learn more. You're always going to have the people, they just don't get it and they don't even want to learn or be aware. I think a lot of the conversations I have, there is a huge respect and a, a huge admiration for a lot of different cultures in our community. I think there's a minority as well that ruin it for a lot of people as well and probably put us back when we should actually be moving forward on some issues. I think a lot of it is that there's so many different facets of the conversation that marble through in a way that isn't neat and tidy enough for us to go, okay, let's pick out this problem, this problem, this problem, and address this person's behavior and that person's behavior and that person's behavior. And that's one of the reasons that we need to be cognizant of how much of a struggle it is for the people who are on the other end of these conversations. And, and you're right. It's like there are no finish lines to this. Mm. The amount of time that I spend with Indigenous activists, with other people in various communities, like I'm never going to know everything. <laughs> I've learned so much, even just in the past couple of years, and witnessed so much about how different their experience is in this country than anyone else who is descended from settlers of any color, flavor, genre. It's a very different way of existing. Yeah. And it's hard for people, I think, to, to wrap our heads around sometimes, but then it goes back to defining what respect for First Nations people actually looks like. Mm. Yep and what kinds of behaviors we're willing to take ownership of. 
Yeah. And not what we think it is, but what do they think it is as well? Yeah. And not just like, you know, the, the neighbor a few houses down, but like other people in the community as well. I think much of the change that needs to happen, I, I think a lot of it comes from the government. The government can put in place systems and, and it's not all just money either, but they can make a lot more change, but they seem to put it back on the Australian population. And I think the Australian government and I think governments around the world have got a lot to answer for, for how they treat a lot of their Indigenous and and their multicultural communities. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is governments, but then it's also in the kinds of pressures that governments respond to. It's like people who are passionate about change and passionate about fighting for change have the power to put pressure on the government to make certain changes. Mm. It's not easy. (laughs) I mean, history tells us it's not easy, but no big, massive societal change has ever really come without direct action. No government goes, oh, you know what? We're suddenly just going to be good guys and we're just going to go flick the switch and it's like, oh, yay. Now more people have rights and freedoms and an even playing field. That doesn't happen. It's the people on the ground fighting those fights and who are committed to fighting those fights mm. that cause that to happen. Yep. Yeah. What a world. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk all day about this. Leslie, I wanted to ask you, you're a proud polyamorous woman. For those that don't know what that is, mm. can you explain it? Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll start with what it means for me to be polyamorous. It's really about having the openness to form authentic connections with people, potentially on a romantic level, if it turns into that. But I I have a partner who is non-binary, assigned male at birth, and we support each other in exploring relationships, friendships with people across the gender spectrum and whatever configurations actually work for us. So I have another partner who lives in the U.S. in New Mexico, so I don't get to spend much time in person with him, obviously. I also date locally and stuff. But for me, my polyamory just looks a lot like having a lot of very special friendships. And like I've had a number of occasions where I'd I'd go out on a couple of dates with someone but then it didn't turn into anything romantic, but we found this really nice point at which we connected and understood what we valued in each other and could come up with our own agreements and boundaries around how we would interact. And that's really what it's about. I think a lot of people get an impression about polyamory that it's it's just about like physical intimacy, it's just a sexual thing, and it's really really not. For some people, they enjoy that aspect of it. The novel encounters on a sexual basis that they have with people. But I mean, there are a lot of people in the polyamorous community who are completely asexual as well, Mm. because it's really about the openness to having multiple relationships, but there aren't strict requirements about how those relationships are constructed, except that they all need to be consensual. And it's a big communication party, really. We talk about our feelings a lot. Yep. No, that's good. Can you talk to me about some of the challenges you've faced? Oh, well, some of the, there's so many, I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, a lot of it is just the assumptions that some people make. Mm. Like I've had 
encounters, even in a professional capacity where I'm working with someone who is a man and then their wife might find out I'm polyamorous and then insist that we just break that professional relationship because I don't know, there's some sort of trust issues there. And it's like, hey, you're absolutely not a predator. And I'm definitely not after anyone's man. It's that constant having to educate people Mm. on the fact that I'm not, that I don't behave in the way that they've associated with polyamory. Because again, there's this idea that it's some salacious thing and that people who are polyamorous are very promiscuous. I mean, I get where those ideas come from, but it's not that at all. But some of the other challenges I've had have been in relationships with people who are new to the concept of polyamory, where (laughs) this is actually a common complaint within the polyamory community. Someone new to the polyamorous way of relating who will date multiple people for a little while And then they'll choose their favorite and then reward them with monogamy (laughs) and get rid of everyone else. And then it turns into this whole like, oh, thank you so much for teaching me so much about myself and making my life better. It's like, what? That's not what we're here for. (laughs) It's like, you're not polyamorous. You were just dating around. You are allowed to do that, Mm. but, but own it. So a lot of the challenges that I've had have been relating to the other partners of people who I've dated or been in relationships with. Yeah, I think that's the main thing, just navigating the waters with people who are new to the whole concept, which is one reason I prefer not to date people who are new to the idea, Mm. because I don't want to educate them through it. My stance continues to be, if you want me to teach you about polyamory, you have to pay me. Because that's part of my professional practice as well, (laughs) helping people live lifestyles that are authentic to them that don't necessarily fit the norms of society because there are a lot of challenges with people associated with that. Yeah. I've heard you speak around jealousy and what you've learned through polyamorous relationships and how that applies to all relationships. Yeah. One of the top questions I get from people is how do you manage jealousy? Actually, no, the question is usually, how can you do that without getting jealous? And the truth is, jealousy still happens. Some people are more prone to it than others, but it's how you respond to those feelings of jealousy that really matters. Because jealousy is a teacher. If something is triggering feelings of insecurity within you, it's a good opportunity to to look inwards and Mm. try to understand what that's about. There was an incident years ago where my partner was starting to connect with someone they hadn't met in person yet. And I was feeling a little like, oh, well, hmm, what does this person have that I don't? I was was going through something at the time (laughs) because they were getting really excited about them and it was distracting them from our day-to-day life and in a way that I now recognize as something quite lovely, actually. But then it occurred to me that what bothered me about this person was the fact that they did all these activities that involved a lot of upper body strength. Mm. (laughs) I was like, oh, this person's a climber. They do this, they do that, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, well, of course. That's one of the things that has always been an insecurity of mine, especially in my parkour days. I always wanted more upper body strength. Mm. So what that told me was like, well, heck, I just... (laughs) need to do some bloody push-ups and get over myself. (laughs) Because it's important as well to 
differentiate between jealousy and envy. I definitely have feelings of envy when it comes to my nesting partner, my primary partner, and their relationships with other people because their other close partner lives locally, whereas mine is in New Mexico. And when when they're like, um, you know, I'm going to spend the night at such and such's house or we're going to go camping for the weekend or something, I get those feelings of like, mm. Well, I wish I could have these little spontaneous trips with with Mateo, but he's a, he's a, he's in a different country. So, you know, it can make me feel a bit sorry for myself at times, but it never has me feeling threatened about my marriage. Mm. Because it's like, okay, let's imagine that my partner does meet someone they like better, and it's like, okay, great, more power to him, but <laughs> in this kind of a context, they don't have to choose between me and another person. Because the other thing is the beginning of those relationships and in the community, we call it new relationship energy. There's a common understanding that you do not make any big life decisions while you are in that state, Mm. because it can be like a drug. (laughs) So it can feel for some period of time, like, oh my gosh, I've met this new amazing person. They're the best person in the world and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, hey, you might honestly believe that right now. And that's cool. I know enough about myself and our connection to know that you'll you'll come back to earth at some point. If you're still getting the dishes done, you're still getting the laundry done, that's cool. Just chill. Just let it let it simmer a bit and then let it cool down and then we can all start acting like normal people again. But that period of time can be really challenging for some people's partners when they watch their partner going through that. Mm. It can make them feel really isolated. And that's one of the things that I help people with in those scenarios. It's like, uh, you know, I'm feeling really insecure because my partner is in the NRE stage. And it's like, okay, well, let's talk about what is causing this insecurity. Is it something that they are doing? Or is it something that you are feeling that you need to change within yourself? And of course, that's a very simplified version of a more complex issue, but that's just a way of illustrating the fact that jealousy isn't some ugly emotion that we should avoid at all costs. Mm. It can tell us a lot about what we want to change about our lives. And that's true with a lot of feelings, yeah? When we feel something, it's telling us more about us and, and what we need to look into because I always say around expectations, you know, a lot of the time if we're disappointed, We're disappointed because of our expectations on another person or an event or how someone else should act or how someone else should live or how they should respond or how they should treat us. But that's our expectation. That's got nothing to do with them. Yeah, exactly. And so many people in relationships kind of skip over those big conversations about agreements and expectations. (laughs) And this is something that even people in monogamous relationships really need to look at on a regular basis, how jealousy is handled in those situations. Because there is a such thing as toxic monogamy. It's when things get to a point where the concept of the monogamy becomes an excuse for very borderline abusive behavior. And sometimes it does cross into abusive behavior Mm. where one partner might say, Oh, well, you have to give me the password to your phone and you need to give me access to all of your communications. So I know you're not cheating on me. That is toxic monogamy. <laughs> mm. And it's like, no, no, I should be allowed to do that because we're in a relationship. But what does that actually say about the strength of your relationship? And how are you going to have a good solid bond with someone if they have no agency over their own decisions? Mm. That's something that I've spoken a lot about. <laughs> 
this whole idea that all is not fair in love and monogamy. There are things you need to consider when you're living life alongside someone else in order for them to still flourish as a human being. Hmm. Because it's no good in any relationship scenario to act like you have ownership over someone. Working as a team, that's much likely to, to yield positive results. Yeah, completely agree. What we've spoken about in this episode very much is around more understanding in a lot of topics. And this is just another topic where some of the challenges you face is because people don't understand. It doesn't align with them. But in saying that, as I look at it, if someone wants to identify or someone wants to live a certain lifestyle or anything like that, it has nothing to do with me. Mm. How I want to live is how I want to live. And mm. I think it's interesting and, and probably you say some of the polyamory commentary and stuff that's put out there in the media comes across salacious, but that's just because it's clickbait, isn't it? Yeah. That's what the media want. They want more people to read, yeah. but it, it's sad and it's disappointing for those in those living different lifestyles or having different relationships or even different genders or anything like that, how it makes those people feel when they're put in a box. Because I think, as you say, polyamory, there's lots of people and they would all be approaching it and even have different views on what it is for them and how it works for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're right about like the clickbait in the media. People want to read about the the sexy thruples or they want to read about crazy key parties and stuff like that. They don't, they don't want to read about board game night. <laughs> they don't want to read about the open discussions that we have around neurodiversity and things like that. They don't want to read about how we manage our time in our Google calendars. Mm. There are all these practical day-to-day -day concerns that are really quite mundane, that just aren't quite as interesting as the one man with two wives who controls everything. And it's like, well, that's a whole other dynamic that is really frowned upon in the community. Hmm. The communication, the consent, that's, those are the key things. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie, I want to ask you, through your life, how has success changed for you? Ooh. It's, it might sound like a cop-out to say, I don't know that it has changed that much, to be honest. But I think the reason I say that is because it goes back to the people who raised me, I think. My mother was always very much about instilling the value of caring and community and helping other people even when it didn't provide an immediate benefit to ourselves. Hmm. So I grew up watching her find deep fulfillment in that because she grew up in poverty in Peru. So when she moved to the US, when she married my dad, her mentality around that didn't change. She was always that same you know, little Peruvian girl just trying to make it in the world and be a kind person. She just had more means to do that for more people when her financial situation changed. And my father, he wasn't different in that regard, but his notions of success, I think, came from setting a goal, ticking the boxes to reach that goal. And I just watched him do that. For, for my whole youth. And 
And it's something that I've always found quite fulfilling, having that goal-setting mentality. But because my mother was there the whole time as well, it came with that realization that like, what really matters at the end of the day is how you make other people feel. Mm. For me, success is about using the means that I have to support community when I can. Mm. And I think it's always sort of been that way for the reasons that I've stated. But one way in which I work to embody that every day is just through doing, doing my little part to make certain things more accessible for more people. Mm. And in business, that's through talking with other business owners about the experiences of people who they don't necessarily understand and translating some of those messages. And like language is such an important tool in that for me. Yeah, language and communication, it's such an important tool for me in that regard. As an activist, a lot of what I do is based around photography, mm. being on the ground at a lot of rallies and protests and photographing the faces of people who have been involved in these social justice movements for decades, and then sharing those images with the wider community. That to me is another way of saying success in that regard is when someone else sees my photos and comes to some sort of an understanding about someone else's struggle. That to me is success. Mm. Any links that I can help create to help people understand each other's struggles more and create a path towards empathy and thinking about the societal changes that can be made to help people live better lives, that to me is success. As I've grown, I guess to really answer your question, because that's always been the underlying fuel of my idea of success, the way I've been able to do that based on the different stages of life that I've gone through has been different. But it's always been towards that core aim of helping people understand each other better so that more people can thrive rather than just like exist in society. Yeah. Today's not my most articulate day. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Listening to you talk about your mum and your dad, I can see where the spark was lit, I suppose, from a service and a doing things for more people in the world. Mm. Yeah, because my parents have both been involved in activism in various ways and raised my sister and me to understand that when we see injustice or suffering in the world, staying silent about it or just doing nothing isn't an option. Hmm. It's just not. But I've also had to manage my own capacity in that regard, which is one reason that I focus so much on photography as, my, as the best contribution to activism these days. Because if I try to you know, do everything... <laughs> I'd get nowhere and I'd burn out and then I'd be not very useful as a, as a tool in the struggle, but by taking, and my photography is, it's candid close-up portraiture. So I use a, a huge lens 
to photograph people in these raw moments where they don't know they're, they're being photographed mm. and then reflecting those images back to them to show this, this moment of raw, authentic passion of people fighting for something that they believe in. That is just so powerful. And I just love doing that. Mm. And every time someone sees an image that I have taken of them and they can see what I saw in them at that moment, and then they react with, you know, a, oh my gosh, thank you. Or, oh my gosh, that's amazing. My favorite thing though, is when they take my pictures and use it as their profile pictures on social media. (laughs) It seems like such a small thing, right? But to me, it's like, ah, this person likes what they saw me reflect back to them about themselves. Hmm. And I find that immensely satisfying. Where can we access or where do you put your photos? Where where can people get a, a look at these? I put my photos on my personal Facebook profile. I keep meaning to set up an Instagram for it, but I will <laughs> very soon because I'm getting involved in another project, which will require I do that. So just by going to my standard Instagram, that's where I'll be drip feeding some of that information. And then when the account is officially launched, I'll be announcing it there as well. Okay. So that's Leslie V Coaching on Instagram, Leslie with an IE. I ask each of, each of my guests that come on one question, and it's who's been your greatest teacher in life? Uh, my grandfather, he passed away when I was 18. This is my, my mother's father. He was a legendary human being. He had many, 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 many grandchildren, but it was always kind of understood that I was the favorite, which I always found to be quite an honor considering there were so many of us. Like, have you seen the movie Encanto? No. Oh, okay. Well, then you can just erase that part. We'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Yeah, so huge Peruvian family, lots of kids, lots of grandkids, but I was his favorite. He just embodied living those core values in a way that reached people so deeply. He, you know, and he wasn't a celebrity or anything. He worked as a high school principal for an art school. He was a very skilled craftsman, leatherwork, woodwork, metalwork and used whatever skills he had to help the people in his town and in the broader community and really instilled those values in all of his children. And that kind of trickled down to the next generations. And this is something that I'm doing for my daughter as well. And when he passed away, there were almost 2,000 people at his funeral. Mm, wow. They, they shut down an entire city block in Cusco for the funeral procession. <laughs> And again, like he wasn't some celebrity. He was just a really genuine, genuinely good human being. Yeah. That's my abuelito. Beautiful. Thank you. When people are talking about some of their greatest teachers and their stories, I always well up a bit because I just, I feel it. (laughs) As soon as I asked that, I could see it had struck a nerve in you, my grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's legacy, hey, that's left. And what legacy do we each want to leave and behind us when we eventually pass on? Yeah. It's like no one's going to remember what car you drove. 
No one's going to remember what your apartment or your house looked like. They're not going to care. <laughs> All about the mark that you make on people's souls and on humanity that really matters in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Leslie, can I ask, what advice would you give to someone maybe in their, their early teenage and they're just trying to find themselves, trying to find their identity? What questions do they need to ask? What advice would you give them? I don't know that I would give them advice so much as ask questions like, when your mind wanders, where does it go? Hmm. What is the world that distracts you from the world that you're living in right now? Who are the biggest influences in your life and in what way do they influence you? And how do you feel about the way that they influence you? Because sometimes, especially with young people, the effects of the influences around them on their emotional state can say so much about what is worth taking with them going forward and making life decisions. They might say something like, oh, you know, my mom has a very strong influence on me, but, you know, she's, she's very strict. And when she gets very strict with me, it makes me very stressed and I, and I, and I don't like it. That's a very different impact than saying, oh, my mom has a very strong influence on me because I see mm. the way she interacts with people and the way they respond to her with such love and respect and care that that makes me feel like that's something I want to pursue in my future. Mm. So it would, be, it would be just a lot of question asking about the life they're living now, the people, the situations that influence them and how they feel about those things. That would be the starting point for me. Yeah. And also just don't, don't, don't get fooled by social media. <laughs> I love those questions because we're all, when we're younger, we're all kind of molded by our families, by our parents, by our environments, by our cultural settings, our type of religion. Then we go to school and then we get jobs and we're molded into being someone that other people think we should be. But it's interesting when you start asking those questions mm. like, you know, where does your mind wander? I love that. Where does your mind wander? And what distracts you? I love at this point in my life and the last few years has really been about being drawn to the things and having that gut feel around certain things. So being drawn to the things that I want to do, the people that I want to spend time with. And in past years, you're probably just kind of on a bit of a treadmill, just going along, interacting and being in environments because you feel you have to, mm. maybe because of your role, maybe because of your family, maybe because of your profile or anything like that. But it's interesting when you step back and go, I'm, I'm just going to go towards the things I'm drawn to and how powerful that can be because it's an attraction thing. So once you start moving in ways that life is pulling you and life is kind of drawing you to, it's actually you feel better and more opportunities come that actually bring you joy, that enrich your life. And, and that's, that's what I really enjoy. You know, you and I connected, you meet everyone for a reason. There is always a reason that you meet people and you connect to people. And, and obviously, as I said to you, when I met you, I connected with your energy and I was like, that's just, I, I just love energy. And people that have got this shining light in the world that are just doing their bit and really just wanting to make the world a better place. And that's what coaches do. But 
there's definitely some standouts and and I love interviewing people on this on this platform that have got stories that have got reflections but are all in their own little way wanting to set the ripples in motion and and together we can make waves yeah and that's one reason that it's so important to find the right coach for each individual person because those different points of connection are crucial. Yeah. Like you have to feel safe with someone. You have to feel like you can trust someone to understand the lens that you see the world through on some level. You've got to trust them. Mm. That's a big thing. Yeah. Leslie, if there's people listening here, they've listened through to this discussion and they've probably got a pretty good idea, but do you want to talk about some of the people that you do coach, some of the services that you offer? Because there may be people listening to this conversation that have connected to you and, and want to connect further. And having that platform for them to reach out would be great. Mm, it's funny. It's a bit of a no-no in the coaching world to, to not have a niche right? To say like, oh, I work with everyone. And I get that (laughs) from a marketing perspective. I totally understand that. But the people who, who come to see me come from such a wide variety of backgrounds. But I think some of the most common characteristics are that they've reached a level of success, but it feels empty because it's not aligned to what they truly value in life because maybe they haven't actually done that deep work in understanding their core values. Mm. I've worked a lot with people who have an interest in social justice as well, because having a deep sense of justice can make just getting through day-to-day life quite challenging in its own ways. Understanding how and when to, to lay the sword down without feeling like you're betraying the fight. That's something that's very challenging for some people. I work a lot with people who are, funnily enough, a lot of the clients I've met recently are non-native English speakers. Very high level English, but I think that has to do with my background as an English language teacher in the academic space. It's just... I don't know. They're just drawn to me in some way. But yes, that overarching thing is that there are people who kind of want to break out of this this pattern of behaving in ways that they've been taught by society to behave Mm. and develop the skills to just live a life that's true to their own values and not society's expectations. Mm. Because having the skills to do that isn't automatic for everyone because you have to consider things like the identity that you've built around the job that you have or the lifestyle that you're living or your family situation. And you have to be prepared to for that to change and how to adapt to those changes potentially. And you have to be prepared to combat criticism potentially. <laughs> you know, like if you've built this identity and this career around being a, a high-flying executive living in a deluxe high-rise something. I, I don't I don't know the lingo. I don't know rich people lingo. <laughs> <laughs> Private jets and caviar and 
Fabergé eggs. <laughs> but then you realize that what you really want to do is become a social worker. That's a massive shift to navigate. Mm. So I know that I haven't actually answered your question <laughs> efficiently. <laughs> but that's just a little story about people who I have been working with rather than the people who I ideally want to attract. Mm. Mm. Because working from a physical premises as well has a lot to do with my not strictly niching down. Mm. Because my marketing focuses more on the local area. And I mean, I work with people internationally as well, but so much of the stuff that I produce and the projects that I'm involved in cater to the local community. And because I started in a physical premises from the start, I wanted to see who I was best at working with as a coach rather mm. than jumping in and saying, okay, I helped blank do blank by blank, you know, that whole formula. Yep. And then just making everything about that. I help empathic leaders break out of self-sabotage. This not, it's like, okay, like I get it. That that's cool. But a lot of people don't necessarily know that they are that. Mm. Sometimes they just feel they need someone to help them uncover what it is they are and what they need to change. Yep. So that's that's the space that I'm kind of dancing around in. Yeah, cool. And I think it's all about connection. I think when you listen to someone, when you hear someone, when you watch someone, you connect, you go, I, I want to know more. And I think that's probably more around the niche and not niche, but people will just connect with people and go, I love your personality. I love your energy. I want to work with you. I do have one specialized program around polyamory and open relationships, but it's funny that a lot of the people who come to me for a more general form of coaching that isn't strictly related to that have polyamory in their background or something. And even though I'm not coaching them on that, they know that when they come to me and they're talking openly about their life, that I'm not going to sit there confused. Mm. Yeah that I'm not going to waste their time getting them to explain their lifestyle to me yeah. or judging them for it. Because I'm very clear in my messaging that my office is a safe place for people living various lifestyles, people in the LGBTQIA plus community. My office is a place where diverse lifestyles are openly supported. Mm, that's good. You mentioned earlier, uh, Leslie V Coaching. Is that the best place for them to reach out and connect with you? Yeah. So on my social media platforms, it's Leslie V Coaching. My website is lesliebcoaching.com. So that's where I have my booking link for the free intro consults as well. But also just through my podcast, those are the best places to reach me directly. Well, and in this technological age, if you type in Leslie V Coaching into Google, there'll be ways of contacting you. That's the easiest thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, stop by the office. I'm just in Tenerife. Brilliant. Mm. Leslie, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really want to honor your time. I'm really grateful for your sharing, sharing your story. Thank you. Sharing your insights and also educating me on a number of things. And I've made some notes. I'm going to read up on some stuff. And it made me think more, once again, about thinking internally about my views on things and how mm. I need to ask more questions and I need to understand more. And I really appreciate you giving the time and the effort in being able to kind of just get us to 
think a little bit outside the square and and get us to ponder some things that we may need to brush up on and maybe look from the other side. Mm. It's been an enjoyable experience doing that. (laughs) So thank you again for having me. And definitely check out my podcast because that goes into some of the things that we've discussed, but from that personal development perspective. And I've been told it's hilarious. So I'm taking that compliment and I'm running with it. (laughs) I'll definitely put it in the show notes. People will be able to connect with that as well, which which is fantastic. Thank you. I look forward to connecting with you into the future. Excellent. So do I. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Steve. Bye. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.